back on Leo Roundtable, policeone.com. Charles Remsburg is the guy that wrote it. And it's uh, titled Lessons Learned from Facing an Invincible Assailant. Now, there was a uh, companion article with this we talked about on the show uh, a few years ago, I believe, uh, but it involves Sergeant Timothy Grammons. So uh, it does say that the Sergeant Timothy Grammons, he fired um, 17 45 caliber rounds from a what they classify as a hellbent suspect before putting them down and that he's offering lessons that he learned from this extraordinary fight for his life. And Brett, you know, being the... Um, firearms expert that you are and of course you're still involved in training because we talked just before the show about how you're still doing training which i think is a, a beautiful thing the number one ad, ad piece of advice that he offers is beef up your ammo reserves and he also talks about always having a back of a gun carrying a loaded rifle uh, where you can reach it and i remember the story involving him you know he was shooting 45 caliber this bad guy would not go down and sometimes you're just in a situation where you can't you know, wait for the guy to bleed out. And I remember in the story, he's he he's running out of ammo. He's only got what a few a few rounds left. And he looks under the car. Bad guys approach the bad guy, makes the mistake of bending down and looking under the car. You know, for a would for a cop. And uh, then he does three headshots and uh, and gets the guy. But if it hadn't been for that, he would have been a roller hurt, and he couldn't get to his long gun. I believe it was in his trunk. So that's why he says always have it where you can reach it. And uh, a little side note on this beef up your ammo reserve section. He says that a lot more, a lot more rounds are being exchanged in today's gunfights than in the past. And he goes with offenders carrying heavier weapons, going on patrol with just a handgun and two extra magazines. It no longer cuts it. And um, that's why he's saying carry more ammo. I can't express how quickly your firearm will go empty when you're when you're shooting for real. There's no worse feeling than pulling the trigger and hearing it go click. Now, I don't want to end there because he's got a, a few more good points. The second one is practice headshots. And he starts talking about when you fire multiple lethal rounds into an attacker and he keeps coming at you, you don't have the luxury of waiting, you know, like I just said earlier, 20, 40 seconds for him to die from you know bleeding out. So he talks about don't waste time arguing the relative merits of various calibers, you know, the entry exit wounds, bleeding out, all that stuff. He says no handgun rounds have reliable stopping power with body shots. He says pick the round that you can shoot best and practice shooting at the suspect's head. Now, the third thing he says is get addicted to self-improvement. And he says you should never consider yourself good enough. Always seek to improve. Number four, fight for something. You know, pick that thing that you that it takes for you to fight, that will to live, will to survive. Number five, read for recovery. He talks about, this is talking about after you've gone through a shooting, you've shot someone, talks about the hard days that are coming ahead of you. And he says that there were two books in particular that were tremendously helpful to him. One was Deadly Force Encounters, what cops need to know to mentally and physically prepare for and survive a gunfight. And the other one is on combat, the uh, psychological cost of learning to kill in war and society. So he says that they should be mandatory reading for people in our profession. And number six, bonus tips. He says, wear glasses. Even if you don't need them, wear them to protect your eyes because you've only got one set of eyes. And if you can't see, you can't shoot. So um, anyhow, kind of curious what you guys think about that. Captain Brent, why don't you start us off? Yeah, carry a bunch of bullets. Um, what they give you at the police department is nowhere near enough. But you know, what, what is the answer? How many? I think if, if the body of your cruiser is riding on the, on the rubber, it's time to take some ammunition out. But, but what is it? Whatever makes you comfortable. Have a couple of hundred rounds for your pistol, have a couple hundred rounds for your rifle. Get better all the time. If the department doesn't pay for it, pay for it yourself. You know, I've been retired six years. I still practice 
combat shooting with my handguns and I'm not even on the street. Um, I like the part about the glasses. I did that. Uh, I, I, I didn't wear, I wore, you know, reading glass, prescription glasses. So I had glasses anyway, but I haven't really thought so much about him. But uh, I have both of those books on my, on my uh, bookshelf as we speak. Both of them excellent. Anything by those two authors, get it, read it, and, and, and have it handy. It's excellent stuff. We used to use their stuff to craft our training at TPD when I, when I had the ability to run that part of the show. I'm telling you, it's excellent stuff. Easy to read. Uh, they have some uh, examples in there. It's, it's not real heady stuff. It's very, very real world stuff. So carry a bunch of bullets, be a warrior scholar, get out and practice. Excellent advice. Thank you. Uh, Major Ron and Corporal David. Yeah, I think this is one of the best articles uh, that we've uh, critiqued so far, honestly. Um, and, you know, you need one good bullet. But, you know, just like you said, when you're in the actual gun battle, that's when your heart rate's up. You know, <laughs> your, your temples are about to split open. Your head feels like it's going to split open. You know, and um, unless you train like that with the combat training, um, you you have no idea what it's going to be like. If you haven't been in that situation, you have no idea. So um, I absolutely agree with this gentleman. I absolutely agree with what uh, Captain Brett just said. And uh, when I got on TRT, it was awesome because it got extra training. It was like that 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 bump up training, just combat shooting, and and just hundreds and hundreds of rounds from rifles, shotgun, you know, pistol, you know, different different rifles. It was it was awesome. It was amazing. And I, I often wish that um, everyone got that same level of training because I went to in service one year and someone shot an 11 and uh, they didn't need glasses. And I was like, are you serious? So that, start make, that makes you think like, if you're in a gun battle, am I by myself? But uh, TBD, I gotta say, they stepped it up. People like Brett, you know, they really, and yourself, they really stepped up our training and um, by the end, it was pretty amazing. Steve Smith, so on and so forth. Thank you. I love the yeah. fact that you were so pro-training major. Um, a lot of that's lost on a lot of people, especially as they climb up that corporate ladder, you know, with police departments. So that, and it's just, it's just. I mean, as a trainers, you know, we know, uh, but everybody should really realize realize the value of that. Corporal David, you know, um, Brett covered everything and and ron i was i was waiting to see if you'd catch it but you know nowhere in here in the article does it start to address or does it address the administrations in some of these in some of these agencies and i think i, I i'm pretty sure you were there ron um at, at tpd at the time when uh when our illustrious mayor friedman decided that it was too intimidating to have a shotgun mounted in in the passenger compartment of the police car and made us and made them be remounted in the trunks of the cars. So now this was a long, this was many years ago. I want to hope that modern police agencies today, sheriff's offices, law enforcement in general, uh, the guys that are riding around in marked patrol cars that are getting into situations like this. Um, I hope their policies allow their officers to carry the types of munitions and weapons in a readily accessible location for this reason. But I hope that agencies out there are hearing this same message that, that we are seeing and hearing and applying them to policies and procedures within their training uh, departments and within their uh, road patrol units that facilitate 
their officers being able to put some of this stuff into practice. Uh, that would be that's that's my look at this at this uh, article. Great article, but that's the first thing that jumped out at me is are agencies catching this? Are they doing putting things in practice to allow their guys to be at this level of preparedness? Not just from a training a training uh, standpoint, but from an equ equipment and the procedural policy allowances to let them do it. You know, David, uh, a good point. Uh, you and I hear you say that. I, I I agree with you. But we have a story coming up with a police leader yanking tactical vests off the shelf for his right. guys. He, he can't. They can't care. You know, they can't wear them anymore. They, they, you know, right. And 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 I have a comment about that too. But we'll get to that. We we'll get to that. But think. I mean, just remember this. I mean, um, TPD. You weren't allowed to carry a backup weapon for how for a long time. You couldn't carry correct. one after, after Cowboy uh, lost his in a fight in a bar. Right. They eliminated so that. There, there was a lot of that. There was there was very strict uh, policies on how you what you could carry on your belt and what you couldn't carry. So, again, these were these were years ago, but. That was my thing from the article. I hope the administrations out there are taking these things to heart, giving their guys the ability to implement some of these best practices. You know, and, and just to harp on something you said again, David, you, you reminded me of, uh, you're right. We could not carry, um, a, unless you wanted to be against department policy, uh, a backup weapon for a period of time. They allow it now. Um, so right. I will tell you that I had a fight with a Signal 6 uh, escape prisoner. Um, there was a chase involved. Um, and uh, then the foot pursuit, and it was a bad, it was a bad fight. And during the fight, he got a hold of my weapon, and it was um, partially out of my holster at the time. I was laying on it, trying to keep him from pulling it out from me, and I ended up um, uh, gouging his eye, one of his eyes out, in order to get out of that situation. And um, and and uh, Joni Diaz uh, showed up, and I was yelling, "Shoot him! Shoot him!" You know, he had my gun, you know, and he wouldn't let go. Oh, I mean, I was promising this guy I was going to name my next child after, you know, my first child after him. I was promising him everything just to let go of my gun, and he wouldn't do it, you know. So after that, I started carrying a backup weapon, and it's that old philosophy, you know, I'd rather be, um, you know, judged by 12 and carried by 6, you know. And so that was an easy decision for me, and, and, and thank God I never had to use it, but I had it if I did, so. Yeah, I, I know a lot of guys, and um, I, I, you know, I, I won't answer the question, but I know a lot of guys that did in different places different weapons in different places, um, in their cars, on their persons, stuff like that. They just did it because they knew they had, or they knew they should. So don't, I'm not advocating breaking policy. People just don't do that. You get so jammed up, but you've, you've got to make sure the policies are in place. And I remember you know, Jerry, Jerry, uh, back when, uh, mayor Jane Castor finally, not finally, when she approved the backup weapons and she directed me to write the policy and the training, I delivered that. Um, we found ourselves in a very unusual position of having to teach policemen how to fire revolvers. Because in, in, the, in the SOP, and it still is this way, I mandated that the backup gun had to be a revolver because the revolvers are very reliable. They operate under almost any, so it's still that way. But I will tell you, it's, it's, it's very distressing that the number of officers, at least of my old agency, that carry backup weapons is still very, very low. Very few of them carry the backup weapons. So, the question is, if you're allowed to carry extra ammunition, if you're allowed to train, how many people actually go out and do that? Is it always going to be the 5 to 10% of every agency? We'll be right back after this commercial break. So, hey, I take this time and I want to talk to you guys about 
how best to watch our show, our live segments, and our live show. So our live show is streamed on Monday evening, 7 o'clock Eastern time, and we do it on Vimeo. And so our main platform is no longer YouTube. We don't want to give them that kind of control over us anymore. But our live show is streamed from Vimeo also to YouTube and the Facebook. Now, it's soon going to be hopefully streamed on LinkedIn and on Rumble. Now, producer Will splits our 90-minute live show in the five segments, and he uploads those Tuesday through Saturday uh, to YouTube, and I get them on Rumble. And we also embed the videos that we talk about. And also, if you go to our Facebook page, Leo Roundtable, if you want to do that in advance of every show, you can watch uh, our videos. You can watch. You can actually read up on the stories before you watch us cover them live. So that's the uh, best way to watch the show. And we're also in Thin Blue Line TV and RedVoiceMedia.com with Ray Dietrich and Free Press with TampaFP.com with Brian Burns. So check those out. back on Leo Roundtable. This is NPR.org, how the loss of U.S. Uh, psychiatric hospitals led to a mental health health crisis. Um, you know, I think uh, Cody's been talking about this, you know, forever. She actually sent me this article, I believe, too. So it starts off saying that a severe shortage of inpatient care for people with mental illness is amounting to a public health crisis, and the number of individuals struggling with a range of uh, psychiatric problems uh, continues to rise. So, they talk about the revelation that the gunman in the Sutherland Springs, Texas church shooting, he escaped from a psychiatric hospital in 2012, and that is renewing concerns about the state of mental health care in this country. And a study published in the Journal of uh, Psychiatric Services estimates that 3.4% of Americans, and that's more than 8 million people, they suffer from serious psychological problems. A lot of us in the show will say, yeah, no kidding. But the difference, of, I guess, of long-term health care facilities and psychiatric beds has escalated over the past decade. Uh, decade. It's sparked by a, a trend toward deinstitutionalizing the psychiatric patients in the 1950s and 60s. And this is according to Dominic Sisti, the director of Scatter Good Program for the Applied Ethics of Behavioral Health Care at the University of Pennsylvania. Now, we got some more, more information from him coming up in just a second. Now, there's a concerted effort to grow community-based care options that are less restrictive, and they uh, grew out of a civil rights movement and a series of scandals that are due to the lack of oversight in, psych in psychiatric care, and this is according to, um, to Sisti. And he says that while those efforts have been success successful for many, a significant group of people who require structured inpatient care, they can't get it. And it's often because of funding issues. So a 2012 report by the Treatment Advocacy Center, it's a nonprofit organization. It works to remove treatment barriers for people with mental illness. It found that the number of psychiatric beds decreased by 14% from 2005 to 2010. And that year, there were, uh, I guess, a little over 50,000 state psychiatric beds, meaning that there were only 14 beds available per 100,000 people. Um, interesting stats. The percentage of people with serious mental health illness in prisons rose from 0.7% in 1880 to 21%. That's almost a quarter in 2005, and that's according to the Center for Prisoner Health and Human Rights. So interesting data. Uh, finally, in order to bridge the gap between hospital stays and expensive community-based care options, SISTI uh, argues for a continuum of care that ranges from outpatient care and transitional-type housing situations for inpatient care. And he even talks about uh, while President Trump and others have claimed that there's a connection between mental health illness and the rise in gun violence, and we actually may have may even 
some of us might think that because of the stuff we cover in the show, but he says that most, most mental health professionals vehemently disagree with that. He says that there's no real connection, and, and this is also by Bethany Lilly of the Brazilian Center for Mental Health Law, that there's no real connection between an individual with a mental health diagnosis and mass shootings. So if anyone feels differently, I'd love to hear that input. Uh, but on this article, Cody, why don't you go and start it off? I think that it, it point it's, it's valid. I mean, as you said already, it's something I've brought up a number of times. And there's a propensity for society to look at law enforcement to start solving mental health issues. You know, we're supposed to be enforcing laws and helping solve crimes and things like that. And of course, we have to deal with mental health issues because we have many calls that revolve around mental health issues. And to be as trained as we possibly can to help people having issues, um, certainly that's beneficial to society and ourselves and what we do as a whole. But at the same token, we see repeat offenders, repeat issues with the same person over and over. We just recently had it happen in Ithaca, New York. We had a gentleman that was dealt with the day before, but refused to say that he wanted to harm himself or somebody else. And the next day he came into the police department and stabbed an officer and the officer had to shoot him and he's now deceased. And then now there's pressure from the community that the officer could have used other means to you know, stop what the events that happened, which is not true. The officer was very justified and thankfully made it through the situation. But you know, we see this time and time again across the entire country. So something has to change in the mental health um, community that allows these people to get help and be facilitate, you know, something that facilitates them to get that help and stay on the course of medications that they need, counseling that they need, services that they need. And if that requires in-house institu institutional um homes, then that's what there should be. You know, people talk about the expense of mental health. Well, what about the expense of, of uh, you know, correctional facilities? They are now becoming mental health housing facilities for people who are constantly committing crime because their mental health is not under control. So, you know, that costs the taxpayers a pretty penny as well. So somehow it has to be balanced out that these people get help and the burden doesn't just fall on law enforcement because that's not what we're here for. We're not psychiatrists. We're not psychologists. That's not our job. Um, the last time I remember having some really pointy conversation on this, it was Chief Newman talking about how it really is affecting us as a profession because instead of, uh, you know, we're getting rid of the institutions that really address the problem, and now we're putting these people in another institution that doesn't address it, and that's the prison system. So um, I, I don't know. There's going to be arguments on what the, the, the correct answer to this problem is, but it's certainly affecting law enforcement. Chief Newman. Yeah, nobody, Chip, nobody wants to pay for it, right? This ain't 1975 or What's it got? Jack Nicholson, R.P. McMurphy is institutionalized, right? With root nurse ratchet, right? That's not happening anymore. And then federal, you know, your federal funds can't go to it either. So we've become a dumping ground. Homelessness has become a dumping ground for the mentally ill. You look at the stat that he gave in the article: 0.7% of the people in the emergency room 20 years ago were mental had mental health issues. Now it's up to over 21%. There is no. There is no good ending. There's no light at the end of the tunnel for this topic. And sooner or later, someone's going to have to pick it up. This is, you know something? The analogy is what we talked about in the very beginning of the show, about the flu, about the pandemic. Who are the frontline people dealing with all societal ills? We are. And no one's figured this one out. It's gotten nothing but worse since a lot of the court uh, cases in the 50s and the 60s and the closing of the institutions in the 70s. And I don't see it getting much better because everyone's keeping the mental hand the mental health can down the road. Hey, we're going to take another commercial break, guys, but we'll be right back.
right. So, hey, I take this opportunity to tell you guys about our radio shows. Now, we're syndicated on 12 stations now. I don't have all the information on the 12th one yet, but we're going to start off with the Boss Hog Radio Network. Now, they're in Florida, and they've got four AMs and one FM. So they're in Bushnell, Lakeland, Plant City, Winter Haven, and also in Avon Park. So we love Boss Hog Radio Network because they gave us our big break in getting in uh, terrestrial radio. And we're also in Florence, Alabama on WBCF. They've got both an AM and an FM. And in Delta, Utah on KYAH. Uh, we're also in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee on WXRQ. And also on Internet Radio, goodtalkradio.com, amfm247.com, and threeriversbroadcasting.com. And, of course, all the terrestrial stations that I mentioned, they have their own Internet access as well, where you can listen to them uh, via the Internet. So check out those stations. Hopefully one of them is near you. back on Leo Roundtable, police1.com. There's a reader poll that they decided to do, and which is interesting because, you know, Police One, they're number one as far as we're concerned. They're the number one law enforcement website in the world and the largest. So the reader poll says that 78% carry off duty most of the time. It, that's uh, interesting information. Now, the subtitle is training for concealed and off-duty carry is just as important as on-duty firearms training. I'd like to find out from Brett in a few minutes what he thinks about that statement. Now, this information comes from a recent, of course, Police One poll, like I already mentioned. And uh, this month, they asked their readers two questions related to off-duty carry. The first question is, how often do you carry off-duty? Now, it'd be interesting to, uh, we've got some percentages on this now. We've got a little over 53%, so 53.8% say they always carry off-duty, and 24.44% say they usually carry off-duty. We've got just under 12% say sometimes. We've got 6.5% that say rarely, and actually 3.84% that they never carry off-duty. So. Wow, I know. I'm shaking my head too, Cody. Now, the second question they asked in this poll, does your agency provide off-duty concealed carry training? So twenty, a little over 25% said yes, 72% said no, and a little over 2% were not sure what the answer to that question was. So that's what we have as far as the poll goes. So, uh, Brett, I'd like to start off with you, if you don't mind, because uh, I know you're a firearms expert recognized by courts. You're also a firearms trainer, active firearms trainer, and retired uh, golly, retired captain with the with the Tampa Police Department and also a commander in a lot of areas on their internal affairs, criminal intelligence bureau. So, Brett, what's, what's your, your take on this? Um, I don't think I'd like to be 100 percent of those people carrying the gun. I'm, I'm surprised that it's not all the way up there, um, but that's OK. People are going to do what they want to do. Now, locally here in Tampa, I just heard through uh, through my son who's with Tampa police that they just offered Tampa police just had a train the trainer school for off duty carry. And it was several days worth of school taught by, uh, uh, Jared Dowds. He's, uh, he has his own training company. He's also the training director at uh, Tampa police. So, uh, kudos to Tampa police for having that training, train the trainer. So maybe that stuff's going to get out, but I, I haven't heard much about any other agency doing that. It's almost like a, look, it's, you're going to do it. Uh, good luck with it. And we don't want to hear about it. Good point. 
Now, I'm, I don't know if there's anybody else who wants to comment on this, but I, I'm, I'm glad Police One did the poll. I haven't seen any hard figures on this. And of course, they're the guys to kind of get this kind of information. They've just got so many active retired law enforcement, you know, on that site. So kudos to them for doing that. Uh, Cody. I always carried off duty and I always carry now. I it, it will be interesting to see with HR 218 laws and some of them have evolved this year if agencies you know start offering more more training for carrying off duty or once retired. Um, I know some of our HR 218 instructors are offering training and and practice stuff that you can go and do in addition to your annual qualification. Very good. Yeah, the Law Enforcement Officer Safety Act, very important, also known as H.R. 218. So, um, and, it, and you're right, it has been evolving over the years. So, uh, and we won't even get into the whole New York thing where they really don't have a tendency to recognize when you're carry, even though you can. I just went to Georgia and uh, packed up my, you know, my firearm. I try not to travel without it. So I had to fly. So I packed it up, put it in the briefcase, you know, went through TSA as proper, um, you know, etiquette. And when I got to Georgia, they had my briefcase separated to a security office. They had a band around it, so I couldn't get in it without like having wire cutters. But the weird thing was, is when I flew back to Tampa, um, TIA, you know, I'm waiting in the security office for my lug, and she says, "I were, you know, we're all waiting with the security officer." My wife goes to check the conveyor belt just in case, and sure enough, my wife comes up with the luggage with my gun in it. It didn't make it the, to the security office. There was no band around it, and uh, they really dropped the ball over there. That was really kind of scary. Um, but, uh, David, I know you're waiting to jump in on this thing, and we've uh, just been joined by Chief Newman, but go ahead, David. You know, the, some of the interesting things that you see or you're, I think that affect a lot of the off-duty carriers is, 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 the, um, is some of the liability issues that, that we see. I mean, you, you brought up the, the thought or the talk uh, about New York, um, places like California, you know, uh, the really uh, left-wing or, or hard liberal states that – do everything they can to restrict uh, gun, you know, carrying concealed and 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 all that sort of thing. I, some of those places, it would you you got to you got to think twice. I mean, even cops that are that are that are employed at the time uh, carrying off duty. I mean, it's 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 an added it's an added risk for you to see a situation, get involved, and uh, and then have to fight your way through it. You know, even having done the the right thing. I mean. I can see where a lot of guys in certain places, certain jurisdictions, would have would be hesitant to uh, to step up and, and get involved in an off duty in an off duty circumstance where deadly force might have to be used, unless you know it's it's their own life or their own family's life that's being threatened. But I, I mean, I can I could actually understand it. Some of the stories that we've seen in the past. As far as I know, we cannot purchase insurance anymore to protect ourselves should we, should we be involved in a lawsuit in regards to a shooting. Um, and also, as far as the flying thing, I fly from New York to Florida quite often. They never even check for my permit, don't check for my badge, nothing. I walk up and say, I have a firearm, I need to check my bag. And they're like, okay, is your firearm separate from your ammunition? Yes, it is. They take it out back, they look at it for a minute, they give me a little tag, and that's it. And when I get to the airport, thank God my bag is on the, you know, coming around on the carousel for me to pick it up because it does have a firearm and they don't secure it in any way, shape or fashion, or even check that I'm a licensed permitted firearm owner or, you know, to have it in my possession. So it surprises me how lax they are about it. Nice. Yeah, nice. Well, so I know some of the rules about traveling. If, if you read them, if you go on the, on the website, there's a, a, a pretty specific set of rules um, having to do with luggage and it has to be secured with a, 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 a keyed lock that, 
that TSA can also open. It's it's a, a very specific set of rules. Now, whether or not they actually follow them to the letter, that's another story. But they're, they're, the rules are in place for them to do it. And Cody, about that insurance thing, last I heard, I knew um, I know the the politicians in New York had were directly attacking the NRA, saying that that uh, they weren't going to allow the NRA to do business in the state or in the city having to do with selling insurance or their uh, their uh, type of firearm insurance. But I wasn't I wasn't sure about other companies. I, I, but I know it was the NRA that they were they were after for certain. Thank. You. That's a good point, Dave. Um, you know, I, I think uh, we should do a poll of our, of our own and our users that are, you know, on YouTube right now that are live chatting with us. Uh, we should poll them and say, who wants this group that you see right here live on the show to fly up to New York and to pack our guns, you know, put them on the plane, put them over there. But, but you know, nice. I we're doing this. The ward comes in, in town from Costa Rica. We'll travel oh, with ward. Good. You know, if we had any, if we had any Gahonis, that's what we would do. We'd meet up. Yeah. Cody would be waiting for us to either bail us out of jail or give us a ride to our hotel. And we'd advertise. We'd send the, we'd send NYPD a notice, you know, in writing, kind of like you know Florida Carry does, and say, hey, look, we're showing up in your neck of the woods on your doorstep, and we're going to be armed. You know, and uh, and Brett, being NRA representative, Brett Bartlett, the captain, you know, we know that he's got the insurance through NRA, and he'll probably get us all insured. So. And let's see, we're, in a, we're still on policeone.com. And this is written by Lieutenant Dan Marco. So I'm actually curious to see where Ward's at. Because remember, Ward's, you know, he hasn't appreciated a lot of the stuff that Dan Marco has written. But the last one, he backed up Ward almost 100% on what Ward's been saying on another topic. But this is titled Surviving Armed Attacks, Why Cops Must Practice the, and it's called the Menu of Movements. And Brett, you're probably going to have maybe some of the most input out of everybody on the show, but it talks about before the event of armed of an armed attack that you must prepare your practice response. The following menu of movements can help you survive and win. So he tells you to visualize the following scenarios and your response to the scenarios. So he starts off, you're knocking on a door, it swings open, and there's a man with a gun. And now you're seated in the, in, the, in your squad Uh I guess car and a man walks up and rips a black semi-automatic handgun from his waistband. And now you're walking up to a person to make contact. He suddenly spins with a stainless steel revolver. And now you're off duty, seated at a restaurant, a masked male bursts through the front door and he's got a Glock in his hand. So in each of these cases, you have arrived at the mud room between life and death, uh, but the bullet has not yet left the muzzle. What do you do? And in the article, I'm not going to go all the way through it, but he talks about making the decision, um, deflect, disarm, dodge, duck, uh, drive and draw and uh, decisions and then prepare now. And and of course, there's some scenarios where you're in where, you know, you may be armed. You don't have your gun drawn yet. We'll be right back after this commercial break.
Mike. So, hey, let's talk about our podcast and our TV exposure. So Law Enforcement Today, they're actually marketing our podcast. Now we've got 10 podcast formats. We do have an RSS feed and we're on Anchor, which is pretty much our staple. So I, I upload the main show, the Anchor from Anchor, which is distributed to all the other outlets. We're on Breaker. Castbox, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, which is iTunes. Uh, we're on Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and also on Spotify. So, um, if you guys are listening to our show while you're traveling to and from work or wherever, and you're just listening to it, you know, on the video on a video format like on YouTube and listen to the audio, try the um, try the podcast. It's a great way to try watching the show. We're also on Live Free TV, and it's on LiveFreeTelevision.com. Uh, check them out there in case you want to watch us either on a uh, on a live program or also on demand. And we're also coming uh, to other formats, including Roku and Fire Stick. So check those out. back on Leo Roundtable, but uh, Captain Bartlett. Well, I think it's a great article. And, and you know, we've been talking about this for a long time. There, there has to be a balance between an officer on the street who's using his mind to think about his options and, and take any one of the many options available. Then part of his mind has to be pre-programmed, has to be hardwired into taking immediate action. Because if he's, if he's even thinking about action, he's already behind schedule. And I think the difference between cops that win and cops that lose is the cops that win, they've worked hard at hardwiring their responses into their brain, and the ones that lose never did that. They're thinking, they're looking for a solution. The brain doesn't have it. The brain is trying to struggle with it. Time is passing, and bad things happen. So if we, but if we told the public we are hardwiring our officers to take certain responses, I don't know if that'd go over so well. All right, we got some open mics here. Uh, go ahead. We've got uh, uh, David, Andrea, Ron. Not necessarily in that order, guys. Go ahead. Go ahead, Andrea. Okay. Go ahead, Ron. That's all right. No, ladies first. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that this is one of those articles that we should read, like, right at the beginning when, when you first get hired so that you go into every situation and you assess it because that's one thing I don't think people do enough of. You need to expect for the worst to happen. You never know. We watched it. Actually, there's a video that I'm sure that we'll talk about later that, you know, you always have to expect that something's going to go bad and, you know, whether it be somebody's going <laughs> to retreat and go get a gun or whatever. You know, I just think it's one of those things you need to assess. do enough of that anymore. Thank you. Good, guys. Dave and Ron. You know, reading the uh, the, the article, the, the stuff in the beginning that you talked about, the knocking on a door, seating your squad car, walking up to a person, all those things, those are all straight out of the, uh, the, the scenario-based training stuff that a lot of us have seen um, for what um, the, uh, the shoot-don't-shoot scenarios, the ones, um, the ones that – uh, the, the Sims training, the, the the video training, all that sort of stuff that we've seen, along with all of the other stuff that for years, as Brett said, you've you've had to have mentally trained for. And if you haven't, you're behind the eight ball already. So um, in, in reading the article, it just didn't seem to be that enlightening. It, it, this is all old stuff that we've talked about for years uh, that if you haven't been practicing as a police officer in some way, shape or form, you're already behind. Uh, so, I, I mean, even though the article was on point, it made sense to me. 
Uh, it just didn't have any information in it that was new or that was enlightening if you were, as John likes to say, a student of the game and you're in it and reading and learning and practicing, at least mentally, what your responses are going to be to these situations, especially in today's day and age when you have these active shooters, you have these ambushes of police, of police officers going on on what seems to be a regular basis, be it in their car, on the street, on foot patrol, wherever. And we're going to see a couple of those tonight if we get to the videos um, that if you're not prepared for, you're not doing your job. Excellent. Hey, Dave. Hey, hey, hey you know, to, to, to really, to, you know, to back up what David's saying, I remember riding with Mike Simpson when one of my FTOs wasn't working, and he would pull up in front of a convenience store at three o'clock in the morning, and he would say, "This is before, by the way, this is after his shooting, because I was in the academy when he was in that convenience robbery shooting, and he would say, you walk up and there's a robbery, what would you do? And he goes, if you're not thinking about that when you're driving around. So to Dave's point, these type of things have been around. I'm glad that they get regurgitated. But if you're a student of the game, I kind of read this like at the four D's of dodgeball, right? You know, you got to do, you know, dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge, right? But if you're not thinking about doing that and visualizing what that would look like, you're at a loss. And any good FTO will teach that to you or any good training scenario, like Andrea said, ought to be showing you articles like this just to re-energize the conversation. And, and, and to take that a step further, it's the same thing that I've said before about what I would tell young rookies on my squad was, you know, in every scenario that you walk up to, you know, the, the first one was just stupid. You knock on a door and somebody comes out with a gun. Well, number one, you shouldn't be standing in front of the door after you knock on it. Knock on it and get the hell away from it. Um, so all these scenarios are the same. And to your point, John, the thing that they did to me was you're driving through this darkened neighborhood and the FTO would suddenly slam on his brakes, yell bang, and ask you, where are you? Yeah. Call for help. Tell me where you are. And it's, it's all that mental preparation that you have to do continuously throughout the shift, throughout your, throughout your career, so that when it happens, your mind is already in gear. You don't have to shift it into gear. It's already there. So a good article, but I, I didn't see anything new in it. I think the article <clears throat> was also a training article, just like Andrea said. And I agree with you, Dave. We, we've been doing this for, for you know, years. And the one who started it for us was uh, the man sitting in that chair, Brett Bartlett. Um, I remember him. We were training in, um, in the academy for in-service training. And we were doing the, you know, you're sitting down and there's a shooting going on. How do you get your gun? And, like, you know, half the class couldn't draw their guns. You know, it, it, was, it, was, it was enlightening. So um, I agree with you. Um, now, like, I had an FTO that was the same way. Mike Noyes would ask you questions. Bang, bang, I'm dead. Where are we? And, you know, you go and up, you park right in front of the door, Ron, why are we, I mean, if they're, if they're robbing this place, we're going to get murdered before we get out of the car, you know, stuff like that. He got, he had me thinking the week I got on the job. And um, I was fortunate enough to uh, become part of the, uh, um, the reboot of the training academies in the state of Florida and then uh, Iowa and, and Nebraska, a lot of states, you know, adopted it um, in this scenario-based training because we had scenario-based training in the academy, maybe three to 5%. But now it's going to be a large percentage of scenario-based training situations, much like these, that get you thinking, and uh, you become a student of the game, whether you want to or not. Saves your life. Thank you, Brett. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I know. Um, well, I, I guess we just had some nice clothes. Um, even even today, you know, being retired six years now, 
I still can't help but run through scenarios in my mind. What are you going to do? And especially watching some of this, uh, we're getting ready to cover some church and synagogue or, or, or um, some attacks involving that kind of stuff. And if you're not constantly thinking about how you would react, what you would do, and just aware of your surroundings, um, um, I, I'd be very surprised if you're if you're seasoned law enforcement. It's just that survival instinct. But um, but e- even today, I, I I continue to do that. Uh, David, yeah, I mean you, and and Ron did it, and and John both talked about FTOs and some of the things that they did. And I mean, I had an FTO, my FTO, or anyways, another. A veteran officer that I rode with that, you know, kept a backup firearm in the center console of his car. Um, I don't think anybody that I can remember ever walked up to that car without him opening that center console and putting his hand on the pistol. Um, you know, you see somebody walking across, you see somebody walking up, and it, it's just kind of a reaction. You're already at a disadvantage sitting in the car. So, I, you know, you, you hear a lot of these stories, you see a lot of things come from the past that were practices that these guys did that they passed on that put you in that mindset so you know the, these things are not new you can't remember the name of the uh, fto um i i i think i i took the fifth on that for for a reason you know just not to expose right. <laughs> anybody's <laughs> past practices hey, hey, hey dave dave i was watching live pd over the weekend and the guys bailed out of car the chase one, and the guy tried to circle around and get in the car, and I, we got a chance today. I think we're watching the video. So my wife had said to me, did you guys, were your cars always open? I said, well, there's a couple unwritten rules. One, you better have an extra key with you, because whenever I get out of my car, I lock it. As I'm shutting it, it was locked, and I always had a spare set. Two, the last person on the scene better watch the cars, or there was going to be yeah. an ass whooping, right? But nowadays, you're seeing, you know, you, you don't get me wrong, that wasn't a fail-safe. But I remember I, I getting out of my car, the last thing you did was slam the door and the lock at the same time because you didn't have them remote fobs, and you were shutting it because you always had a spare set of keys. I remember being taught that. Like, rookie, you when you checked out a fleet car, you better check it out a second set. I remember um, Alden Davis teaching me that. That's how far back, A.A. Davis, always having a spare set of keys. It's those little things that you don't remember, I mean, you don't think about, but if you open up any good cop's belt, they're going to have two sets of keys on their car, uh, on their belt for their cars. It's the same thing here. It's a matter of always being prepared, always assuming something bad is going to happen. The article wasn't enlightening, but I do think every now and then they have to readdress these issues just to make sure the newer guys are getting taught the same things we got taught. Well, look, uh, thanks for joining us. Hope you guys enjoyed the show and hope you guys have a fantastic week coming up. A shout out to our sponsors again and a big thank you to Gauls. GunLearn.com, X-Duty Solutions, Viridian Weapon Technologies, and Guardian Alliance Technologies. Hope everybody has a wonderful and a safe week.